what I appreciate about this moment in time is that I think people are getting more comfortable with the idea that everything is an experiment. Welcome to Reckoning and Repair, the art that's touched Philadelphia. I'm Jean Lieberman, a graduate student in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania and an extremely amateur textile artist that finds myself constantly coming back to embroidery to work through life's biggest existential questions. And you just heard from Christina Vassallo, the executive director of the Fabric Workshop and Museum here in Philadelphia. In this episode, I speak with Christina and her colleague Katy Perry. Together, we explore how the museum unsettles a canon that reifies finished products and opens up the black box of artistic experimentation to Philadelphia publics in new ways. And we reflect on the ongoing work of transforming the forms of connection, collaboration, and conflict that emerge in museum workspaces. visiting space because it is like our active storage. That's Katy Perry, the museum tour manager. Our registrar had the idea of making it a place where people could see how things were stored and preserved and so we, this was our first attempt to do that by like revealing what was inside of a, a crate and it's this is Yinka Shanabari's project that he did here at the workshop. And there are these, obviously, like life-size astronauts, and this is how they would be stored and preserved. Um, but it's kind of like a new thing that we're trying, and it's really fun. Like, I, it'll be exciting for more of them to be revealed like this. For the past 45 years, the museum has been dedicated to supporting living artists' experimentation with textiles, a medium often belittled in canonical accounts of the visual arts because of its gendered associations and many museums' historical investment in policing an elitist boundary between what is considered art and what is considered craft. The Fabric Workshop and Museum works with artists to challenge this, and the fairly small museum's archives hold work by some of contemporary art's most acclaimed artists like Lorna Simpson, Carrie Mae Weems, and Maria Abramovic, all of whom they've hosted as artists in residence. So everything at the Fabric Workshop begins with our artists in residence program. The exhibitions culminate from that. Our collection is grown through that. Um, and then our educate much of our educational programming responds to those exhibitions. Like all other museum programs and so many aspects of our daily lives, this signature artist-in-residence program had to be radically reimagined when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, just a few months after Christina started as executive director. So this box is like, um a local artists who are typically a painter, but they use a lot of found fabric in their paintings. Katie is talking about Jonathan Linden Chase, a Philly-based artist whose work explores Black queer subjectivity, calls into question the distinctions between public and private, and examines the relationship between closeness and community. 
all of which took on new meaning and relevance as Jonathan's residency came to overlap with the first few months of the pandemic. And so this was the yardage that was created at the workshop. And it's like all these very significant symbols for Jonathan. Um, the rosebud, which is like a, sen a symbol of, of tenderness, but also strength and like your desire to protect your tenderness um, and vulnerability. And then the butterflies have these different masks or faces on them, and they're meant to represent the way that like a person finds their true self and like becomes free in that process over time. And they also like had this really beautiful, but like sort of what felt like at the time, like a challenging idea, which was that they wanted to create a pair of boxer shorts in this colorway that they would mail to different participants of this project. But basically they, they wanted the participants to experience wearing these boxer shorts. And then people would kind of journal about what they did while they were wearing the boxer shorts and then wash them following the introductions and then mail them to the next participants. And it was right in the beginning of the pandemic and we were all just kind of like, how are we gonna do this? Because at the time, <laughs> People still thought it could be passed through like touch or through surfaces. And so, and it just, we felt like worried about how is this going to work. But the idea behind it was that Jonathan really wanted to share the tenderness that they feel and that they experience in their life with others. And so it was such a beautiful idea. So we just did it. And we made these beautiful boxes and Jonathan really wanted to wrap everything in tissue paper and put baby's breath. So when someone opened it, it was just like this really beautiful gift. So it was just a really beautiful project that didn't seem possible at first, but all of the projects that we do here don't seem possible at some point. And then we just, the studio staff just figures out how to like do those dishes really nice. Our collaborations with artists also um, influence the, the interdepartmental work, right? The way we work together as staff. You know, since I came in, I have felt very strongly about creating a more collaborative kind of work environment. And COVID in some ways has made that easy. In other ways, it's made it really challenging. Christina leapt into that challenge as soon as the pandemic hit, extending the collaborative spirit that the museum brings to working with artists to their relations with other local arts institutions. This idea of the consortium, it first started as, you know, as soon as the mayor had announced the, the shutdown, you know, it was terrifying. It was a terrifying prospect. No one knew what to do, but I knew that probably the bigger organizations had advanced knowledge and the smaller ones just didn't. And so I thought, is there a way that we can share information because we're not getting the information we need um, as quickly as, as we need it. And so I started these Zoom calls. I invited like, you know, the five executive directors I had had a chance to meet before the shutdown. And I said, let's make this a weekly thing on Zoom. Please invite other leaders that you know. So at first it was truly about COVID, how to remain safe, how to prioritize staff could we share resources? Could we, you know, lobby for cost saving measures, right? Maybe if we combined and all of our employees and got on the same health insurance plan, right? Could we save on our premiums? Um, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and then George Floyd happened. 
And, um, and so then we started to talk about that and how as leaders must we respond to that, right? There's this notion of radical transparency. I don't think we ever felt um, compelled to share our strategies with each other in this way. And it, it was these two side by side, really difficult situations that brought that out in us. Right now I'm printing these dishcloths that were sort of the culmination of a, a long project that we did as a staff um, for like an effort of diversity training, but kind of doing it in a, a new and experimental way. And basically the idea behind our training was that um, we had we were partnering with Lonnie Graham and Lonnie had done a lot of diversity training in the past and he really wanted to be to try a different approach and he really just wanted to invite people to bring a dish that in some way connected to their identity and was something that they wanted to share with the staff and then we would just have a conversation that was really organic that just came from whatever um, whatever arose from that exchange and people brought in um, all different kinds of things and the stories were all very different and it was a very nice way to learn new things about our co-workers but also to have a conversation that wasn't based on our roles at all but was about our lives and our identities and our feelings and what we enjoy and really simple things like food. Simple but has all this um, potential to, to open up a really deep conversation. And at the end of the project, we, we decided we wanted to do something to like um, kind of hold the whole experience in our mind. So we decided on a dishcloth, which would be in the kitchen and be something that would connect to meals in the future. I think a lot of organizations rely on the fact that they have diverse representation among their artists. And that's the bare minimum. That was something we all agreed to do 20 something years ago. Right? So for organizations to rely on that now as proof of their commitment to DEAI work, is it's not, it doesn't cut it. Um, I think what what we're speaking about is when full leadership is involved. So when the board is involved in these conversations, when all levels of staff are involved, including the executive director, and they're showing up and participating in you know these really vulnerable conversations um, and building the kind of um, uh, how should I say, atmosphere in the work environment where people can be vulnerable with each other and learn from each other's lived experiences and accept them as true. As we spoke, Christina explained to me how her earliest career experiences at an artist collective in New York shaped her approach to leadership. My preference has always been to, to just be able to like be involved in everything in an organization. And so I started, you know, at a really small organization. I started as a volunteer 
grant writer and then started curating shows at Flux Factory, which is in Queens. Um, and in a really brief time frame, um, the executive director decided to, to, to move on. And um, on paper, I was the most likely choice, even though I had no leadership experience at that point. And so that was really like the start of me, of my leadership career in, in the nonprofit visual arts field. So everything I needed to learn about running a socially responsive and relevant and responsible art space, I learned at Flux Factory. I did not learn it in school. And so it really was this firsthand experience of just working side by side with other people. Um, and so, you know, what collective action looked like was care, right? Care for one another, a sort of a soft hierarchy, you know, consensus-based decision-making and just navigating the space of conflict resolution, you know, and, and attempting to, to come to similar conclusions wherever possible. And, you know, I, I, I have definitely tried to take that with me throughout my career. Um, and it does get really difficult when individual needs are, well, I, yeah, individual needs can sometimes be in conflict with public service and the public good, right? And the organization's needs to um, serve the public. Taken just one step further, these tensions raise important questions. Can museums serve a singular public? How do museums reckon with the histories that shape us all as individual museum goers and museum workers? Which histories do museums recognize and what are audiences and workers asked to leave at the door? And so, I mean, I think a, a really good minor, I don't know, if, it's not minor, but it's a clear example um, was, you know, for Juneteenth this year, we decided that, so I made it a staff holiday, um, but we decided to keep the museum open because we had a really excellent show by um, a local black queer artist. I mean, it was a massive undertaking for that artist. And it was, I think, like the final day of their exhibition, Juneteenth. And I thought, you know, this is the place where people should be on Juneteenth. And so we will remain open. And it was a Sunday, which meant that our part-time staff were the only ones that needed to be there, not our full-time staff. And um, so there was pushback, right? Like, we want to celebrate this day as well. And so that, I think that's where explaining your rationale is really important too, right? And here's why I believe it's important for us to stay open. And I also understand your need to want to celebrate. And I'm sorry, I can't, you know, um, make that, that day of celebration materialize on it, the precise day, but, you know, um, please celebrate the day before <laughs> if possible. Pondering this example raises further questions, like whose histories and whose labor are made visible and who's invisible when we think about exhibitions as events and also as the everyday work of maintenance and custodianship they require. And how are museums reckoning with histories of labor? Before I left the museum, Katie shared another jumping off point for those questions, 
also pulled from the museum's archive of artist boxes. This is Sonia Clark's project. And Sonia um, came here in 2018 or 19. Sonia Clark is an acclaimed fiber and multimedia artist whose work explores race and identity formation in America and seeks to activate audiences' embodied knowledge and the redress of histories of institutional racism. She began her relationship with the Fabric Workshop and Museum as a student in the apprenticeship program back in 1993 and returned in 2019 as an artist in residence when the work that Katie showed me was made. Basically what Sonia wanted to do was create a monumental flag of truce, which is a artifact from the Civil War that most people don't know about. At the time, it was very hard to find white cloth, and so they must have just found like the closest they could find to like something that would pass as a truce flag. So it was just like a waffle weave woven dishcloth that a person would have in their home, and it had these red stripes on it. But then it's just been like forgotten. No one talks about this truce flag, and it's not a symbol that we have. In an interview about the project, Sonia has expressed that by reintroducing the symbol, she hopes to push museum audiences not into a feel-good celebration of an event, but rather into grappling with questions that dominant narratives about U.S. history tend to suppress. She asks us to ask, what does truce mean? What does surrender mean? What's the difference between those two words? Did a truce or a surrender happen in the wake of chattel slavery? What would that look like? And how can we be a part of enacting that today and disrupting the continuities of what she characterizes as our plantation to prison history? And so the studio staff went through the process of like, his, doing historic research and finding out like, well, how was the red tide? Was it done with cochineal or matter root? Um, and they realized it was matter root, so then they were experimenting with creating different shades and intensities of the matter root. And so these are all just like labor, hours and hours of labor and tests by the studio staff to come up with the right color. And then they um, had to create all these two spies for the show. Sonia's work addresses audiences nationally but takes on special significance here in Philly and at the Fabric Workshop and Museum, which itself is housed in a former flag factory that likely once produced textiles meant to buttress dominant narratives about U.S. history rather than question them. Perhaps more than a coincidence, this irony of history underscores the importance of following Sonia's lead out of the museum's archives. It arms us with new tools to probe how and why whitewashed monuments to national independence so often come to overshadow discussions of the legacies of slavery in Philly's official engagements with its landscape, and how we might help shift that. For more on that, I invite you to tune in to another episode of Reckoning and Repair, produced by Chris and LaRoar in conversation with Louis Messiah, who has worked for many decades to shift narratives about placemaking and race in Philly. This has been another episode of Reckoning and Repair, the art that's touched Philadelphia. Reckoning and Repair is a Center for Experimental Ethnography project engaged with the exhibition Rising Sun, Artisan in Uncertain America, 
a collaboration between the African American Museum in Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. The exhibition will be open from March 23rd to October 8th, 2023.